Uh, will you join me in prayer? Send us your spirit, O God, as we meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Prepare our minds to hear your word, move our hearts to accept the things that we hear, purify our will to obey in joy and in faith. And we pray this through Christ our Savior. Amen. Yeah. All right, how's your Lenten stuff going? Has anyone uh, caved in on their Lenten commitment? All right, I had a bad day. <laughs> we did do official confession this morning, so there's mine. Um, I, I, I messed up once. It was kind of sort of not my fault, though. We had a five-hour drive. It was like starve or break my Lenten commitment, so I did break it once. All right. Now, it gets easier, though, so if you haven't started giving something up, now you've only got a couple weeks left. So it gets a lot easier to start today than it was a couple weeks ago. Today's the fourth Sunday in Lent. Lent is this 40-day period where we focus on the death and resurrection of Christ. And so each week in Lent, what we've been doing is we've been using the passages that come out of the lectionary. And so that's a big word. Most people don't even know what it is. It's really simple. It's this three-year cycle that goes uh, through the Word of God. It's used by people, uh, multiple denominations all over the world are in. This, this is what I like about the lectionary. There are millions of Christians all over the world that are inside the same word that we're under today. And personally, I think that's really cool. Um, and so these lectionary passages for Lent, they're describing the landscapes that you know Jesus walked on his journey to the cross. And so today, uh, Jesus, we see him seeking out this man who suffered uh, greatly in his life. He was a man who was born blind. And so, you know, it makes me think when I was a kid, I don't know if you did this or if it was just me, I have a feeling I'm not going to be the only one who wondered what would it be like to be blind, right? And so as you're a kid, you put the blindfold on, um, you peek out the bottom of it so you don't hurt yourself. Um, some people just close their eyes and try to walk around and that usually lasts, what, 10, 20 seconds tops uh, for you stub a toe, run into a wall, um, and the experiment ends, and there are about 20 different causes, I did a little research on blindness, 20 different causes, about 40 million people in the world who are blind, um, but here's something I found interesting, that 90% of those who are blind live in developing countries, 90%, um, and so there's this correlation, this connection between blindness and poverty, right, and so that was something that to me was a little bit alarming, something that kind of caused me to pause and reflect a little bit, that there's a real correlation between blindness and poverty, and that connects really well to our story uh, today. And so many people lose their sight uh, in life, but some, due to genetic uh, defect, are born blind, right? And so being born blind in Jesus' day was kind of a recipe for a lifetime uh, of suffering. And so when I was studying this passage, I actually went to uh, my local Albertsons one day, right after I was, I was thinking about what would it be like to be blind? And minutes later, I go to the grocery store, um, and I remember I saw this, uh, this young woman with her mother. Her mother was blind. And with one hand, she was leading her around the store. With the other hand, she was pushing uh, the cart, right? And these, both these women, they had huge smiles on their faces. They were happy. Um, and I couldn't help but wonder, what would that trip to the store have been like for that mother without the help of her daughter, you know? And so I found these incredible stories. There's tons of stories about people who regain their sight. They're confusing stories. There's a thing called Project Prakash, if I'm saying it right. They perform hundreds of surgeries on blind children from the poorest region of India. And so these kids have a lot in common with the man from our story uh, today. 
And so there was this video of one teenage boy who was born with cataracts on his eyes, born blind since birth. He received his sight. And when it, they have a video on him. And when, it's, when he first received his sight, he just sat there completely motionless, blinking silently as these new images flooded into uh, his sight for the very first time. And at first, many people can only see colors and movements. Uh, arranging them in coherent pictures is impossible. Uh, they say it's kind of like the experience when you go to the, the eye doctor and your pupils are dilated and you walk out into the sunlight. Uh, we all know what that uh, is like. Um, and so the blind are so used to not seeing that they actually have to learn to live as people who have sight. It's something that their brain actually has to, to learn. And so like this project, Prakash, who cares about these poor blind children in India, we see in this scripture that Jesus cares about and seeks out these hurting people like this man, that Jesus sees the kinds of things that we all too often fail to see. That day, Jesus saw this man who had suffered greatly. And so without any good scientific explanations for blindness, sicknesses of all kinds were traced back to sin. So of course the disciples would ask that question that we seen seems odd to us today. Who was it that sinned? Was it, his, was it him or was it his parents? And Jesus' answer to their question is that neither of was the sin of his parents nor his own that caused the affliction, that this man's challenging and difficult life was about to change. And Jesus says, so that God's work might be revealed in him. That this man's transformation was not only going to be a gift for him, but it would be a gift for others as well. And so Jesus got to work. And it's interesting, it was the work of his father, he said. It's the work of healing and restoring what was lost. And so he makes this mud pie, he wipes it on the man's eyes, and he tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is really interesting. The fascinating detail to me is the word uh, in the scripture, it said that Siloam means sent, right? And so if you look at its kind of fuller meaning, it actually means the name of the one who is sent. Ooh, this is a, fa- this is a fascinating detail. This is a detail that really means something in this story. We know the name of the one who was sent. We know what his name is, right? We know the name of the one sent for the salvation of the world. His name is Jesus. And so Jesus tells him, go wash in the pool in the name of the one who is sent. The name of the one who heals, the name of the one who restores, the name of the one who saves. And he does this, and he regains his sight. Now, there's a couple different uh, responses to the healing. These are, these are incredible, right? The religious leaders and the neighbors, they're of divided opinion. And so these neighbors, you have to think about this in a, in a community. These neighbors, every single one of them watched this blind man grow up. They knew him as a kid. They know his name. They know his family. And we don't know his name. Everyone there knew this guy. Most likely, they had to walk past this guy every single day, begging for his survival, relying on the charity of these strangers, these people in his community that he doesn't know just to get by. And yet, after this healing, some were certain that it was him. Others thought it was just a lookalike. When the neighbors are asked how he regained his sight, he simply named Jesus as the one who opened his eyes. 
And so the Pharisees, they respond to his healing with rules and regulations. They bring the healed man in for questioning. And when these great Bible scholars enter the stage, we learn that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath, a day of rest, a big no-no. And so in the Pharisees' minds, Jesus is more of a renegade rule-breaker. He's not the compassionate healer that we look at, probably, when we read this story. They're much more concerned about the breaking of the rules than in this incredible miracle. You just have to imagine, how, how can this be? How can someone be so blind that they have a walking miracle standing right in front of them, speaking with them, and they know this man? And yet, they don't believe. But some, I love this one sentence, it says, but some of them wonder. Some of them wonder. How could a sinful man heal anybody? And so, when the Pharisees asked the man how he was healed, he kind of steps up his game now. Not only now does he know Jesus' name, but he's sure that this Jesus is a prophet, a man from God. And so now the name of the one who was sent was Jesus, a prophet of God. The best response is his own parents. His own parents respond to their son with cowardice. When the Pharisees question the man's parents, they respond out of fear of these consequences. And so they lie about it. They admit that it's their son. It's kind of hard to get out of that one. Uh, they admit that he was born blind, also pretty hard to deny that one. Um, they also admit that he can see now, congratulations, uh, but they refuse to name the name of the person who healed him. They will not say <coughs> And so in fear, they deny the very person who gave sight to their own son. They won't say the name of the one who was sent to heal their son. And so we're reminded of Jesus' words from Matthew's Gospel. Jesus said that everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge them before my Father in heaven. The opposite is also true. And so Helen Keller, we know most of us are familiar with her, before her 60th birthday, she expressed pity for who she called the real blind like these religious leaders, like this man's own parents, for those who have their eyes and their sight, but they still don't see. Her long years of physical blindness had given her some real insight into the spiritual life that kind of enabled her to enjoy life to the fullest. And this is, this is what she said. She said, If the blind put their hands in God's, they find their way more surely than those who see but don't have faith purpose. And so the Pharisees and this man's own parents kind of demonstrate the kind of blindness that Helen Keller was talking about. It's a blindness that refuses to open itself up to reality. It refused to acknowledge the healing work of Jesus in this man's life. And so by contrast, the man born blind did exactly what Helen Keller suggests. He put his hands in Jesus. And he did two really simple yet important things. First, he did what Jesus said. And second, he told the truth. That's what he did. He did what Jesus said and told the truth about it. So he knew next to nothing. 
All he knew at first was his name, but he did what Jesus said. Jesus, it's just fascinating to me that Jesus didn't give the guy a list of things he had to accomplish before he could be healed. He didn't make him pass a Bible trivia quiz, right? He didn't tell him that he would only heal him if he was persistent in prayer or if he could name all 12 of his disciples. He didn't do this. He simply said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man did it. Even with these potential negative consequences, this guy didn't lie about it. The fascinating thing here is that the more he told the truth, the more truth was revealed to him. To me, this might be the most important thing in the story. When he's questioned by his neighbors, he said he only knew the name of the man who healed him, but he didn't know anything more. When the Pharisees questioned the man, not only did he now know the name of the one who was sent to heal him, but he also knew that he was a prophet of God. And then when he was questioned again with threats of excommunication from the community, the guy doesn't waver. Again, he told the truth in the face of persecution. He admits he doesn't know where Jesus came from, but the one thing he's really certain of is that it was Jesus who opened his eyes. And so Jesus hears that this poor guy is being persecuted again because of the healing. He seeks him out, and he just asks the man, bless you, if he believed. His response, this is where he takes it again to the next level, his response is, Lord, I believe. Truth is being revealed to this man. See how he gains not only his sight, but more importantly, he gains insight into who Jesus is as well. Jesus was first the man, then the man had a name, then the man with the name was a prophet. And by this statement, now the man is Lord who opened his eyes. He's one who has authority. And it's now that this blind man can truly see. Now, I'm so curious what this guy's experience would have been like at the Pool of Siloam. At that moment, when he actually receives his sight, was it like the reports of people today who gain their sight only to see colors and like vague shapes without form, who see light flooding in, who see people as two-dimensional flat forms until their brain is actually retrained to see more? As time went on, as he continued in telling the truth, more was revealed to him he began to see things much more clearly. And so he knows that the man who opened his eyes by the end of the story is worthy of his devotion, his worship. And while sadly the religious leaders, his friends and his own parents, they're the ones that remain in the dark, blind, unable to see the one who was sent by God to heal and to restore and ultimately to save. And so I think maybe a thought-provoking couple of questions that we can ask uh, that kind of get us to think about this is, uh, how is our vision? We go get our vision checked. I do get my prescription updated every year. I get older. Um, This passage gives us a couple of simple things to think about. Am I willing to admit my own blind spots? And so I just think when we're honest, Uh, We're confessing that we, too, are spiritually blind at times. Uh, At Lightshine here, we're a group of people who are committed to understanding God's word. 
We're committed to living God's mission in the world, but we freely admit that we don't have a corner on the market on these things. We don't have all the answers. We will make mistakes. We have. Uh, It was like when I finished seminary, I remember I was just relieved. Uh, What I learned was that after three years of full-time study, staying up till wee hours in the morning every night for three years, trying to keep up, what I felt like at the end of three years was that I knew less than when I started. I don't know if anyone's ever had that experience before. The complexity of God's word is just mind-boggling. And so I'm really comfortable admitting that I don't know everything. <laughs> Some of you are shocked. Right? <laughs> not, not these two. <laughs> or actually anybody in the row. <laughs> or in the second row. <laughs> but what I am comfortable with is the fact that we seek out the one who does know everything. And I can't help but think of this like a kid on a hot summer's day at the pool, on the deck, when the lifeguards are screaming at him not to run, to follow the rules, to walk. We all know that, right? And yet, what do kids do? They're excited. They run, right? They break the rules. This is what Jesus was doing. He was like a kid breaking the rules on the pool deck, right? And this, as kids, were excited the pool's right there. The rules tell us that we can't run. We run anyway. We can involve ourselves into these healing waters of Siloam, splashing in this refreshing, cool pool to be restored, to be healed from all the kinds of things that ail us. And so we gather around God's word. We sit under the authority of the real teacher, the only one who really knows the answers to the kinds of questions that we have. And if we're doing this, we're just confessing our need for Jesus. Our own need for healing in the places in our own selves where we hurt the most. In our weakness and our frailty, we begin to really see. Our vision becomes clear. The Pharisees, they thought they had it all worked out. Jesus tells us that they're the ones who were really in the dark. Because they didn't recognize, it says, the light of the world who was standing right in front of them, right in their midst. And so maybe the second question is that the man shows us is, how am I doing as a person of integrity? Are we people that are willing to give God the credit for the blessings in our lives? In the face of ridicule by a world that sometimes laughs at faith in God, are we willing to acknowledge that it was none other than Jesus who healed and transformed our own lives. As we look at this story, we see that God honors the truth teller by revealing more and more truth to this man as time went on, more and more of Jesus. And so we can be real with each other here in this community. We can be real with God because all of us are blind and none of us sees perfectly. But with integrity comes clearer vision. And finally, following his example, how, are, how am I doing in the area of obedience and just doing what Jesus says? We listen for Jesus' word in our lives. We put one foot in front of the other, following the best we can. And it's an obedience when we place the full weight of our lives uh, in following Christ, trusting, like Helen Keller said, placing our hands in his that's when we seem to gain more insight into who God is in Christ. 
It's in the listening and the faithful doing of what Jesus asks that we too are healed from our own blindness and receive our sight. And I can't help but wondering that this guy, how many people came to believe in Jesus because of this formerly blind man's testimony? If I were a betting man, I'll bet there were a lot of people that came to believe in Jesus because this man refused to not tell the truth when asked. And so as God sent Jesus, Jesus sends us, the church. And so may we learn to seek out these hurting people around us to show the love of Christ, always being honest about the reality of our own situation, trying our best to do the kinds of things that Jesus asks. And it's in this that Jesus will be revealed to us more and more. And so we're going to close with the story of Fanny Crosby. She not only has a great name, uh, she lived in 1820 to 1915. She was blind from infancy. But that did not stop her, this is absolutely amazing, from becoming one of the most prolific hymn writers in history. She composed over 8,000 songs and hymns. She wrote so many hymns, in fact, that all the, uh, all the hymnal publishers started refusing to publish her songs because they said one person can't get the credit for like 8,000 songs. It was too much. So she actually used 200 pseudonyms during her career <laughs> in order to get all of her hymns published. It's amazing. When she was eight years old, she wrote these words. She said, eight years old, oh, what a happy child I am, although I cannot see. I'm resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep, to sigh, because I'm blind, I cannot, and I won't. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, you seek out the hurting. With compassion, you restore the sight of the blind. On this Lenten journey, give us eyes of faith to see you more clearly. Give us eyes to see others, particularly those who are hurting as you see them and respond to them in love and in mercy. God, we desire to bathe in the healing waters of Siloam. We bring to you the struggles of our weak. Heal us from all the hurts. Wash us in the healing waters of your love. Restore us to wholeness, that our lives might be a testament to your glory and a blessing to those around us. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.